Welcome to the Pursuing Faith Podcast, where we explore questions of faith, doubt, and life. I am your host, Dominic Doan. Hey everyone, well, I'm here in the basement of our house, aka my office, and this is kind of take two now because I had my golden doodle Bella in here, which, uh, by the way, she looks like a wild, crazed uh, teddy bear right now because her fur needs to be groomed. But she was here with me in the office and then started snoring. I'm like, I don't know if that's going to translate well on the podcast. But I'm really excited about this episode because we're in the season, I'm calling it Questions. And what we're doing is we're tackling each episode a different question that I've been receiving. Questions about faith and doubt. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about, is Jesus the only way? And we looked at this issue of pluralism. And today, we're going to get like uber meta. And we're going to talk about probably the most important question, does God exist. So fasten your seatbelts for this. I want to give you a lot of content. Hopefully it's encouraging and inspiring. Hopefully it'll, it'll get some questions flowing and lead to interesting conversation with others. But before we get to it, um, real quickly, some nuts and bolts, housekeeping stuff. Um, as you know, Pursuing Faith is a nonprofit ministry. And so we're doing these different events uh, in different parts of the country. And uh, you can see what we're doing, by the way, on pursuingfaith.org. But wanted to let you guys know of a few things that are coming up. So I just got back um, from a short trip to Sacramento and uh, was teaching at a church on Sunday. And then on Saturday, I've kicked off a series of lectures. And it's all about how our souls can flourish. Because I believe that one of the ways we can move through seasons of doubt or deconstruction, one of the ways we can pursue faith is by attending to the inner dynamics of our soul. And so this is the very first Saturday of every month over this next season. And we got this cool coffee shop area in Sacramento. And we had about 50 people show up for this first event. Uh, it's 7 o'clock Saturday nights, lecture style, kind of more academic style. And we're talking through the health of our soul. So if you're interested in that or you know someone who lives in the Sacramento area that would be interested in coming, reach out. We'd love, love to welcome you guys there. It's free of charge. And I'm hoping to do more of these in different parts of the country. So that was this last weekend. A few things to be aware of in the next few weeks. Uh, my family and I were heading to Albuquerque, New Mexico this weekend. We're going to be a part of an event there. Uh, the following weekend, I'll be teaching at what's called an Expositors Collective here in Colorado Springs. And then uh, those of you who live in Southern California, September 26th, I'm going to be giving a talk on faith and doubt at Calvary Chapel in Vista. And then the week after that will be our next uh, seminar on the health of our soul. Again, first weekend in October. So those are some of the things that are coming up. Again, check on our website, pursuingfaith.org, if you want more info. But let's dive in to this question. Does God exist? 
And let me start by giving you a list of a few books. Now, you may have read some of these. If so, if you want a longer reading list, uh, trust me, I've got more. <laughs> and so you can you can email, reach out. But here, here's a few books that I found helpful around this topic. Uh, I think the gold standard's probably C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Uh, John Lennox, he's a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. He's done a lot of talking and writing on this. Um, one book I've really enjoyed, it's called Gunning for God. Um, Alistair McGrath, he's a colleague of John Lennox. Uh, he wrote a book called Why God Won't Go Away. And then of course, William Lane Craig, a pretty famous apologist. Uh, he wrote a book that I really enjoyed called Reasonable Faith. So there's a handful of books if you want to go deeper in this topic. And again, feel free to reach out if you want some more book recommendations. You know, in John chapter 4, Jesus was having a conversation with a woman at the well. And this is what he said to her. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then Jesus said, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who's an atheist or agnostic? And they say something like, I don't believe in God because, quote, there is no evidence. It's kind of the same reason they'll say that I don't believe in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy or the Loch Ness Monster, because you can't prove that they exist. If you could prove it, then I would believe it. Now, the implication with that kind of line of reasoning is that God must be a physical being within the physical world. And therefore, we ought to be able to scientifically evaluate him just like anything else. I, I remember a time a number of years ago when my family and I were living in Oxford. I'm working on my master's degree. And I heard about this seminar that Richard Dawkins, who is probably the world's most famous atheist right now, he wrote The God Delusion. And I heard that he was giving a seminar just down the street. So I'm like, okay, that, I want to see what he has to say. I show up, I listen to his seminar. And then they open it up for Q&A. And someone asked him this question, and it was so brilliant. They said, Professor Dawkins, is there anything that would change your mind about God? And he said, like what? And the person said, well, let's say that God just suddenly appeared in the clouds. And he wrote in the clouds in Hebrew. <laughs> he said, I exist. And you look up and you, you see that for yourself. He said, would that change your mind? And you know what Dawkins said? No. He said, even if that kind of event happened, I, I still wouldn't believe. He said, I'd probably write it off as some kind of, you know, delusional event, some psychic event or whatever. But he said, I, I wouldn't believe it. He said, I, I, I'd probably just want to grab God and bring him into the, sci the science lab and dissect him and, and try and understand him from a physical perspective. And I found that response to be really fascinating because what that tells me is that as a scientist, his belief isn't falsifiable, which of course, that's a huge problem. But it kind of puts the finger on this important premise that many people, when they say they don't believe in God, they, they, they are trying to say, hey, I would believe in him if he could be scientifically proven. But the problem with that 
is that as Christians, we don't see God that way. We don't believe that God is a physical object confined to the physical world, right? We believe that God, by definition, is limitless. He's eternal. We believe that God is the cause of all things. He's the source of all things. We believe that God is both within the universe and outside the universe. For example, Colossians 1 says, In Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. You see, we believe that everything that exists depends upon God to exist. Right now, the the breath in your lungs, the heart beating in your chest, your hopes, your dreams, desires, every moment, we believe, is a gift from God. And I point that out because for hundreds of years, the way that philosophers and theologians have argued for the existence of God is rather than looking for empirical arguments— They look for logical arguments. That is, rather than looking for God inside the physical world, hey, let's build a bigger telescope or a bigger microscope, then maybe we'll find God and we can prove him scientifically. No, instead they've asked, does the existence of God make sense of the world as we see it? In 1961, um, the USSR put their first man into space. And what's so interesting about this time is that when they landed, they were telling the press about the experience and, of course, expressing their pride in the Soviet accomplishment. And and a guy by the name of Nikita Khrushchev, he was one of the leaders of the Communist Party, he used this as an opportunity to promote atheism. And he said something like this. He said, look, they went up to space, but they didn't find any trace of God up there. Again, this is kind of like Richard Dawkins' line of reasoning. Hey, if God exists, then, hey, if we go to the moon, we should find him. Or if we go to Mars, we should find him. If we have a bigger microscope, we should find him. But in response to this, C.S. Lewis, who happened to be living back then, he wrote an article, and you can look it up online. It's called The Seeing Eye. He said, look, if there is a God who created us, you're not going to find him by going up into space. That's not how God relates to the world. It's not like you have a guy on the first floor of an apartment who wants to see the man on the second floor of the apartment. Well, in that case, all he has to do is is climb some stairs. But Lewis says that that's not how God relates to his creation. He said, if there is a God who created us, he would relate to us probably the same way that Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Now, of course, Shakespeare is the author and creator of Hamlet, right? He made him. He made his world. The only way Hamlet could know about him would be if Shakespeare wrote things about himself into the play, right? Could Hamlet find Shakespeare by saying, I'm going to climb up into the rafters of the playhouse, and then I'll know he exists? No, the only way he would know about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare wrote something into the play. Therefore, Lewis says, the only way we're going to know God isn't by going up into outer space, but 
if God chooses to reveal himself to us. Now, again, as Christians, we believe that God did that through his son, Jesus. He did that through his word. When we talk about the existence of God, what we're not talking about is let's get up into the rafters of the playhouse. Instead, the deeper question is how has God revealed himself? What are some clues and signposts that point to his existence? How has God written himself into the human story? So that's, I think, the most important question. And the way to begin to respond to that is by looking at our universe and looking at the human story, looking at our life and saying, okay, has he written himself into the story? Are there clues? Are there signposts that point to his existence? And I believe the answer is an emphatic yes. Let me share with you why. In fact, let me just share with you four thoughts. Number one, the universe exists. That's a huge clue. This is also known, by the way, as the cosmological argument, and it basically goes like this. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe had a cause, and that cause is God. Or you could quote Martin Heidegger, the philosopher. He said, why is there something rather than nothing at all? When you look at the universe, the drama and the chaos of deep space, the mysteries of quantum mechanics, the moment of the Big Bang. It's like a signpost pointing to an ultimate cause. Something created it. Something caused it. Something is responsible. And this is true not only on a grand cosmological scale, it's true in smaller ways too. Everything has a cause. You know, when, when, when I lived in, in Portland and I was working at a church there, um, I remember a time, I don't know, like three years ago or so, when inside the church, the electricity was acting so weird. Uh, lights were flickering on and off. It was kind of creepy, to be honest. And we're running around trying to find the cause of this. Why is the electricity acting weird? Why are the lights flickering? An electrician came out. He began to do some investigation. And you know what he found? It was a rogue squirrel. <laughs> this squirrel somehow gotten up into the rafters, got access to a wire, and he chewed it. And it turns out, as he was chewing it, it killed our electricity and it eventually killed the squirrel. And so I'm talking to the electrician. He's like, oh yeah, squirrels do that all the time. They kind of like how it makes them feel because it gives them this buzz, so to speak. <laughs> now, I think we all know people like that. Um, but the point is, everything that happens has some cause. Now, some people would respond to this and say, well, that cause doesn't have to be God. In fact, that's the argument that some books in recent years have made. I think of Lawrence Krauss, uh, who wrote A Universe from Nothing, or Stephen Hawking. Uh, shortly before he died, he wrote a book called The Grand Design. There's a ton of these kinds of books where the premise is, because of quantum gravity, the universe didn't have a beginning. And if it didn't have a beginning, it doesn't have a God. Therefore, God doesn't exist. How do we respond to that? Well, earlier I mentioned John Lennox, the Oxford professor, 
And when that book by Stephen Hawking came out, he pushed back on Hawking, which, by the way, they, they had a very interesting relationship. Uh, Hawking and Lennox would go back and forth. They'd love to debate. Hawking wrote the book, The Grand Design. Lennox, a few months later, wrote a book in response called God and Stephen Hawking. <laughs> um, it's a great book, by the way. And in that book, he, he says, look, Hawking is wrong on three levels. You, you can't say God doesn't exist because gravity exists. Because first of all, the law of gravity is something, not nothing. So where did that law come from? Secondly, Lennox argues, it's logically incoherent to say that X created X. It's like saying, where did this glass of kombucha that I have here in my hand, where did that come from? Well, the glass created it. Well, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's circular reasoning. And so too, if you try and say that X created X, that gravity is the source of all things, well, that doesn't really solve the issue at all. But thirdly, laws by definition depend on the existence of nature. Laws describe reality. They don't create reality. Now, when we lived in Oxford, I remember how Hawking was interviewed in a newspaper in England. And in that newspaper interview, Hawking was kind of making fun of religion and talking about how it was false. And he had this one line. He said, quote, religion is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. And they then went to Lennox and they asked him, what, what do you think about this? You know, your colleague just said, religion is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. And I love Lennox's response. He said, no, atheism is a fairy story for those afraid of the light. And the point he's making there is that both sides are a leap of faith. If you say God created the universe, that takes faith. But personally, I think it takes even more faith to say that the universe came from nothing. So I think that's a good place to begin is, hey, how do we know God exists? Well, the universe exists. Who created that? another point that's kind of related to that. Number two, the world is uniquely designed for life. Now this is known by the way as the teleological argument. It comes from the root word telos, which means purpose or design. It's a pretty simple argument. It goes like this. The universe is highly complex, therefore it must have a designer. You think of Psalm 19. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hands. You see, the more we study the universe, whether it's the microscope or telescope, the more we're learning how profound and interwoven and complex and multi-layer it appears to be. Each new discovery doesn't point us away from a designer, but towards a designer. In fact, some people argue that the universe couldn't exist if it wasn't designed. This is known as the science of fine-tuning or the anthropic principle. And it basically says, hey, everything from molecules to matter to carbon to oxygen to the Earth's distance from the sun, everything is exactly what it needs to be to sustain life. And according to the anthropic principle, if those values were off just slightly, life wouldn't be possible. Now, let me give you some examples of this because... This is, pretty, this is pretty fascinating. Some examples of fine-tuning or the anthropic principle, and there are at least 
at least over a hundred of these. But here's one, the sun. It's 93 million miles away. If the sun was 94 million miles, there wouldn't be any life on earth. If it was 92 million miles away, there wouldn't be any life on earth. The sun is exactly where it needs to be for life to exist. Here's another. The earth tilts 23.5 degrees. Did you know if the earth didn't tilt, it would run the risk of becoming tidally locked. So you'd have one side that gets the sun all the time, and then the other side would never see the sun. The tilt is exactly, precisely how it needs to be to allow the earth to sustain human life. Or hydrogen. Did you know that hydrogen must convert 0.007% of its mass to helium continually for the earth to sustain life? If those values were any different, life wouldn't exist. The atmosphere, it has to be exactly 21% oxygen. The ocean, 3.4% salt, which by the way, it's the exact percentage of salt in the human bloodstream. If that percentage was off, even by a fraction, life couldn't exist. The expansion rate of the universe, any faster, life wouldn't exist. Any slower, life wouldn't exist. In fact, physicists say that the odds of just that, that thing being exactly the way it is, is 1 in 10 to the 55th power. Now, (laughs) this is crazy stuff, but to put it kind of in perspective, so... Let's say you have some dice. And this, by the way, shout out to my friend Justin Brierly. Justin, if you're listening, thank you for this example. Justin's an amazing guy. He has this podcast called Unbelievable. Highly recommend it. But he uses the example of dice. So if you, if you picked up a pair of dice and you roll it, the, the, the chance of getting a six is what? One in six. Now let's say you roll that dice again the chances of getting two sixes in a row is one in 36. Each time you roll the dice, the chance of you getting a six is more unlikely, right? Well, the chances of rolling it 70 times in a row, that's one in 10 to the 55th power. (laughs) How long would you have to stand rolling nonstop to get 70 sixes in a row? Well, someone's done the math. It's 100 trillion, 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 trillion years. That's a long time. And keep in mind, that's just one of these fine-tuning constants, the expansion rate of the universe. We now know there are over 100 of them. Now, I don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but it's because of these discoveries that more and more scientists are saying, okay, the earth, the universe is so finely tuned that this can't just be an accident. The dice are kind of loaded here. You have Arno Penzias, who is the co-discoverer of the radiation afterglow. He has begun to say things like this. Or Ed Harrington, who's a cosmologist. Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Project. Anthony Flew is another person who's been influenced by the fine-tuning of the universe, which you you can do some research on him. Uh, He was the Richard Dawkins, kind of the last generation of vocal, like hardcore atheists. And in 2004, he came out and said, you know, I actually don't think that way anymore. I've changed my mind. And he wrote a book. You can go on Amazon right now. It's called There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And he talks about why he changed his mind, why he was open to the existence of God. And for him, 
What changed his mind was the study of science, specifically the fine-tuning of the universe, which, this, to me, this is what makes studying science so exciting and exhilarating. I think personally, why Christians should be leading the charge with science, because everything about creation is an opportunity to see the fingerprints of God. Whether biology, chemistry, physiology, neurology, psychology, astronomy. I mean, if God is the ocean, then science is the vessel that explores the depths of God's beauty and creativity. So this brings me to the third point. How do I know God exists? Number three, the world is beautiful. I love this point. You know, Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, he once said that beauty will save the world. When we look at our world, we don't just see design and order. We also see beauty, right? And what beauty does is it awakens a longing within us. I think of the words of the theologian Thomas Dubay. He said, the experience of beauty evokes a nameless yearning for something more than the earth can offer. It reawakens our spirit's aching need for the infinite, a hunger for more than matter can provide. You see, beauty, which by the way, I think a whole lot of work should be done here on an apologetic of beauty. That's a fascinating area to study. But beauty, like a signpost, what does it do? It points us to the source of beauty. Beauty makes us ask the question, where does it come from? So when you witness the colors of a sunset or the way that light dances on the leaves of the fall trees or outside our house right now, you see the majesty of the Rocky Mountains or you hear a song that moves you or you stand before a work of art that brings you to tears or you fall in love or you you see a good documentary. You know, I, I saw one recently called Salt of the Earth. It's a documentary about the Brazilian photographer, Sebastio Salgado. So, so moving. Or, or you go on Netflix and you see a David Attenborough documentary and the way he describes and stands in wonder of creation. Have you ever seen those Planet Earth documentaries? Penguins riding 50-foot waves or Galapagos marine iguanas being chased by racer snakes. I mean, that scene alone, if you've seen it, you know. That scene alone is proof there's a God. But when you see, when you see beautiful things... You have to ask the question, okay, are these accidental? Are, are they the product of chaos, chance, and time? Or is there a God who made it? And if they are accidental, why are they so beautiful? Why? Here's an interesting question. Why do we long for beauty? And I personally believe the reason why is because we were created by a beautiful God who made a beautiful world who designed us with a longing for beautiful things. And someday we believe that all things will be redeemed and restored and made beautiful again. You know, Revelation tells us that God's dream for the world is a world of beauty where he wipes away every tear from our eye, where old things are passed away and all things are made new. Let me give you just one more thought before we wrap this up. 
Does God exist? I believe yes. And here's why. Number four, morality exists. Now, (laughs) this point is so fascinating. I wish we had hours to talk about it. But here's something to just kind of get the wheels turning. In Romans 2.15, it says, The law is written on our heart. Our conscience is evidence of the reality of God. In other words, Romans says, If there was no God, there would be no objective reason for morality. But when you look at the world... Everyone has moral intuitions, right? It doesn't matter if they're in the suburbs of Colorado or Portland or the plains of Africa. Every human has a deep sense of what's right and wrong. In fact, have you noticed this with kids? Even from the earliest age, they know about right and wrong. (laughs) You don't have to teach your kid to lie, right? You don't have to sit down your two-year-old and say, okay, Here's lying 101. Here is how to deceive people. It's called American politics, right? You don't have to do that. They already know all that. So here's the question. Where does that sense of morality come from? Some people would say, well, it's the result of evolution. It's a byproduct of natural selection. Okay. But here's the problem with saying that evolution is responsible for our morality is that when you look at evolution, it's kind of brutal, right? It's red and tooth and claw. Only the strong survive. We're witnessing right now the Delta variant of COVID and the way that this virus is beginning to mutate. It's kind of brutal. You see, evolution would say that we live in this brutal red and tooth claw world. And therefore, if we get our morality from that... (laughs) Well, we're going to have serious issues, right? Others would say, no, we get our morality from society. We, we collectively determine what's right or wrong. But that doesn't answer the question, where do we get that collective sense of what's right or wrong? You see, if it's just trying to keep a pulse on the cultural zeitgeist, well, cultures change, they shift. And if we are getting our morality from what culture says is right and wrong, well, where's the ultimate standard? So for example, take slavery. Up until 1865, it was legal in our country. Then, praise God, we changed the laws. Now, here we are, 156 years later, we're repulsed by the idea of slavery. We're ashamed that that's part of our story. Now, most people would say, yay, you know, we've, pro- we've progressed, we've moved forward, we've become more moral. Absolutely. But here's the thing. If you don't believe in God, it raises a ton of questions. If we're moving forward, if we're becoming, quote, more progressive, well, What is the force that's moving us forward? Secondly, why is the culture of 2021, if there is no God, why is it more moral than the culture of 1865? Thirdly, if culture is the definition of morality, then whose culture? Then what culture? Why not Taliban culture or ISIS culture? A few years ago, I was living in a country where Up until recently, cannibalism was the norm. It was culturally practiced and culturally accepted. Now, here's a question. If there's no God, can we objectively say that cannibalism is wrong? Now, you might have some very strong preferences. (laughs) 
<laughs> when I lived there, absolutely. Like, what would I do if I was approached by a cannibal? Give him the cold shoulder, right? Um, which is a terrible cannibal joke. But if there's no God, can you truly say that it's objectively wrong? If there is no God, then where do we get our moral sense from? Now, earlier I mentioned William Lane Craig. Um, I found his work on this to be so helpful. And there's this line in one of his books. He says, in a world without God, who's to say whose values are right and whose are wrong? There can be no objective right and wrong, only our culturally and personally relative subjective judgments. Think of what that means. It means it's impossible to condemn war, oppression, or crime as evil, nor can you praise generosity, self-sacrifice, and love as good. For in a universe without God, good and evil do not exist. There is only the bare, valueless fact of existence, and there is no one to say you are right and I am wrong. Now, many people, even some atheists, would have to agree with what he's saying. If there's no God then we cannot say what is objectively right or wrong because it's our own preferences. It's the changing zeitgeist of culture. It's you-be-you philosophy. Now, there's an atheist. He lives in England. His name is John Gray. Um, He wrote a book a number of years ago called Straw Dogs, which, by the way, a little warning, it's a very dark book, so I don't necessarily recommend it unless you want a window into the thinking of some atheists. And what's interesting about this book is that he critiques modern atheists, guys like Dawkins, Sam Harris, others. He critiques them and he says they don't go far enough. They're trying to have atheism while holding on to Christian morality. In other words, it's just a form of humanism. It's morality without God. But John Gray says, no, if you're really an atheist, if you really don't believe in God, you can't have it both ways. He says, because there is no God, there is no such thing as morality. John Gray says, because there is no God, you cannot objectively say that certain things in history are objectively wrong. He says, an atheistic view of the universe cannot offer a moral framework. Now, I mentioned it's a dark book. It is. And what's really chilling about it is that if you really believe it's true, if you really believe there's no objective right or wrong, that will shape how you live your life because ideas matter, right? In other words, what you think about God influences everything. That's why this question matters. Does God exist? This isn't just something to unpack on a podcast. This is the defining question that will shape everything in your life. What you think about God will affect how you live, how you treat others, your values, your morality, your view of human rights, your politics. And if you don't believe God exists, those things inevitably will reflect that belief in some way. But if you believe that there is a God who made us in his image, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. If you believe there is such a thing as purpose, ultimate morality, justice, that's going to shape your life too. The answer to the question, does God exist, is vital because it has very real implications on how you live your life. So how do I know? that God exists. Well, we've talked about just a handful of things. The universe exists. 
The world is uniquely designed for life. The world is beautiful. Morality exists. If we had time, we could talk about the ontological argument, consciousness, mathematics. That's an interesting area. The historicity of Jesus, the resurrection, the Bible, personal experience. But let let me just wrap up this, this episode with this thought. Even if someone says, hey, I don't believe in God, okay, but I still believe that everyone worships something. (laughs) This is so true, right? If you don't believe in a God who made you in his image, well, sooner or later, you'll make a God in your image because we're all worshipers. Everyone, I think it's one of the things that separates humans from the animal kingdom. My dog, Bella, she's an amazing dog, but I don't see her fold her paws in worship, right? I don't see her praying before digging into her meal, right? One of the things that makes us human is every one of us, believer, unbeliever, every one of us has a longing in us, a thirst in us, a desire to connect with the God who made us. And if you don't believe in a God who made you in his image, well, We'll make, Nietzsche talked about this, you'll make a God in your own image. It's like the the story of the little girl, five years old, she's sitting at the kitchen table and she's drawing away. And she had this really intense expression on her face. And her dad walked in, he's like, honey, what are you drawing? And she looked up at him dead serious. She's like, I am drawing God. (laughs) And he laughed. He's like, you can't draw God. No one knows what God looks like. And she frowned, she put her hands on her hips, and she said, well, they will know when I'm done with this. You see, we're all drawing pictures of God, every one of us. And what we draw determines the kind of life we live. You know, David Foster Wallace, he was a postmodern novelist, brilliant writer, and he, he wasn't a Christian. But I think what he said about worship, man, he nailed. He said, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then You'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly when time and age start showing you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What an interesting quote. David Foster Wallace says, look, the, the question isn't what do you worship? It's, it's who you worship, right? It's not if you worship, it's that you worship. Everyone worships something. And Jesus, when he was standing there at a well with a woman who was looking for an ultimate purpose to align her life around, he said to her, if you come to me and drink, this water that I offer you, living water, you will never thirst again.